Of all the passages you could pick on Intergenerational Sunday. <laughs> Come on now. Baseball has been in the news of late. There seems to be some sort of dispute uh, between owners and the players of, uh, going on, and who knows if there'll be baseball and if we'll be on time. And as you would have it, uh, our character this week, uh, we actually see a little nod to baseball in the chapter, right at the very start of the chapter from which our text is drawn. Uh, you may not have known this. Uh, some of you are familiar with where baseball shows up in the Bible. You know, there's the beginning, right? So things like that, or the prodigal son who had a home run. You've heard those type of things. You're not supposed to steal, right? So all that stuff. I know, right? Right? Well, we see it here in our text as well. We see Jephthah, Israel's soon-to-be deliverer, has three strikes against him. Nope, not going to go there? No, know anybody? His daughter wasn't safe at home? No? Okay. Strike number one. All right, we'll stop the amateur comedy hour here. Strike number one that he had was his pedigree. That's the strike number one. See that right from the start of the chapter. The writer makes clear in the first part of verse one, if you look at that first part there, you'll see that Jephthah is described as a Gileadite. Uh, so much so that his father's name is simply recorded as Gilead. Now, I was reading a commentator this past week. It's not like this guy's, his dad's name was Gilead the Gileadite. Um, or something like that. I did go to school with someone named Kelly Kelly, so that uh, kind of an interesting note there. Uh, but rather, what's going on here is it's possible that it was lost to history, that the, the name of his father was lost, and so they simply just replaced it uh, with Gilead here. So all this seems rather consistent uh, with the kind of person that you would call to be your leader. We would expect the people of Gilead to call one of their own at this point. It doesn't hurt that he's a mighty warrior, that he's described that way as well. But then we learn this in the second part of, of the first verse. We learn that his mother was a prostitute. And that, of course, would be a problem. Particularly in a culture where inheritance, we think throughout history, the inheritance of lands and titles, uh, holds such great importance. His pedigree here is a liability for him. And it would garner such responses as him being illegitimate. Uh, not to mention other stigmas that would be attached to it. And though we might imagine that this is a yesteryear type problem, we see this kind of thing happen in our own day when people start talking about uh, their history, their parents, their ancestry, and that sort of thing. So that's strike one. Strike two is this, and it's his, it's his home. The second strike emerges as a result of the first. Jephthah's pedigree used here now as a pretense, we see that in verse two, as a pretense for the response of his family how they respond to him, particularly his siblings, uh, who stood to benefit from his being out of the picture. Some here might say that this is the reason why he's sent away. But I use the word pretense intentionally here. We've already seen that Jephthah is described as a mighty warrior in verse 1. We see later on that in verse 3 that he's able to draw a following. And I imagine here that perhaps much of this sending away has to do not only with him being quote-unquote illegitimate, but also has to do something with uh, the notion that he's a real problem. He's a formidable force that needs to be dealt with. They could see that coming down the road with this guy. But whatever the reason, whether it was reason or pretense, this second strike pushes Jephthah out from the secure cover of family, of home, and even to some sense, uh, future. And the family dynamic is rather strained here, as you can imagine, if you're going to throw someone out of your family. Um, and it, families oftentimes go that way. 
Groups oftentimes go that way. Have you seen the film, the Disney film Encanto? Have you seen that? Yeah, we don't talk about Jephthah. <laughs> That's just what happened here. We don't talk about Jephthah. Strike three, we got two strikes. Here's the third strike. Longtime professional baseball broadcaster for the Detroit Tigers, the late Ernie Harwell, observed this. He said, baseball is a lot like life. It's a day-to-day -day existence full of ups and downs. You make the most of your opportunities in baseball as you do in life. And this third strike is a strike of crime. Here we see in this text that with two strikes against him, Jephthah makes the most of what is before him in life. He, takes, he lays siege to the opportunity that's before him. Those opportunities would not be many. And so he takes the one that he can get. And we see here that he flees to the land of Tob. And there he begins a new life. Though the text tells us that in Tob, a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Outlaws. Uh, you look at the word there, it's just these people without, without an ethical mooring, right? That's the, that's the group that's around him. Uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of outsiders have now collected with him at this, this point. And that's strike number three. Along with those earlier two strikes, we have a picture of a person who indeed is very capable, right? Very capable, mighty warrior, can gather a following. But at the same time, we find here an outcast criminal from a broken home. That's who Jephthah is. He's an outcast criminal from a broken home. Do we know any folks like that in our day and age? Have we met people like that? Are we some of those people that come to this place? Do any of these parts speak to our own personal lives? That we've been outcast at some point? Or maybe we too come from a broken home? That's where Jephthah comes from. That's who this person is. And it brings us to the verse that leads off our very first verse of our text this morning. Hearing all that, we haven't even got to our text this morning. But it brings us to our first verse. I thought it would be important for us to hear that when we hear this. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Came on that guy. It came on that guy. The guy from the broken home. The criminal outcast. The Spirit of the Lord comes on that person. Comes on him. And Jephthah's abilities are certainly recognized by the elders of Gilead. We'll see that in the chapter and the passages leading up to our text. They visit him and they attempt to enlist him and his leadership skills into battle. They want him to lead their army. And so they come to him and they plead that he would join them. And after all the assurances and agreements are made, after they come to terms of what it will take for him to come out from that land of outcast and to join back with his people, it's clear that this previously illegitimate figure will become legit. Some might say too legit. Go ahead. Too legit to quit. No? Nobody? A certain generation there is just really groaning. Like, what just happened here? We've got baseball. We've got MC Hammer. <laughs> What's coming next? But seriously, Jephthah's abilities are recognized. And they're quite a contrast to those who are the commanders of Gilead's army. At the very end of chapter 10, we get a glimpse of those so-called abilities. It says, The commanders of the people of Gilead said to one another, Who will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Uh, you go first. <laughs> no, no, really, you go first. No, I must insist. No, you go ahead. You lead the battle and go ahead. That's what's going on with these commanders. 
They seem to be lacking some significant courage to step up and to step out and step into this battle. But in verse 29, it shows that Jephthah's abilities is more than natural, right? Even though they come to him and they talk to him, it's more than natural. It's supernatural as he'll be empowered by God for that very task, the very thing the commanders are looking for. And what happens is total victory. When God comes onto his life, he becomes victorious. And it's so memorable, the victory, that Jephthah will not only be remembered here in Judges uh, for his work as a deliverer here of Israel, but he'll be remembered by an early Christian writer. And we've drawn back to this writer previously in Hebrews 11, where Jephthah is seen here as one of those ancients who are commended for their faith. And so we're reminded once more in this text, we've seen this at different points, that God calls into service and the people that God claims as God's own and the people that God empowers by God's Spirit may differ than who we might imagine or accept. And that's a reality of the Scriptures through and through. But there are no shortage of outcasts. There's no shortage of outsiders who take honored places in God's kingdom. Thank God for that. There's no shortage of them. And we can't ever forget that. The 19th century preacher Henry Ward Beecher, and if that name sounds familiar, it's not because you love cheese, all right? <laughs> that name sounds familiar, it's because you probably know one of his family members, his sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. But this preacher, Henry Ward Beecher, uh, observed this. He said, The church is not a gallery for the exhibition of eminent Christians, but a school for the education of imperfect ones. Beecher was known throughout his life as a preacher, and he was known throughout his life for his emphasis in his ministry on the love of God. Just imagine that was your legacy. You were known for your emphasis on the love of God. You could emphasize a lot worse things. And so we're not surprised, none of us, I'm not surprised, I shouldn't be surprised at least, when modern day Jephthahs not only find a home in our midst, but also make a valuable contribution to our life together. We shouldn't be surprised by that. That shouldn't shock any of us. There's a song by Randy Travis entitled Three Wooden Crosses. Have you heard this song? It's kind of a kind of builds you up. It's kind of a, a, a really a redemptive song in a lot of ways. Starts out a farmer and a teacher, a hooker and a preacher, riding on a midnight bus bound for Mexico, right? One's headed for vacation, one for higher education, and two of them were searching for lost souls. So this group of four is on this bus, and then tragedy happens. The driver never saw a stop sign, and 18-wheelers can't stop on a dime. Ends up being a wreck and ends up having three crosses on the side of this roadway to mark lives that were lost in that accident. Now you'll remember I said there was four people that were mentioned there. So the song talks about what was left behind by the three. It says that the farmer leaves property and a farming legacy in the life of his son. The teacher left behind wisdom in the minds of all the students that she had taught. And that third cross belonged to the preacher. Third cross belonged to the preacher. Who in the last moments of life, according to the song, whispered to the fourth person on the bus, can't you see the promised land? As he laid his blood-stained Bible in her hand. 
And Travis wraps up that song by saying, that's the story our preacher told us last Sunday as he held that blood-stained Bible up for all of us to see. He said, bless the farmer and the teacher and the preacher who gave this Bible to my mama who read it to me. And so certainly the son of a prostitute can be redeemed and have a different kind of story, can go on to lead a faithful legacy, and we see that same type of story told even in our own day in song. It's rather touching, a touching legacy. God's mysterious working amidst tragedy and redemption, and like our text this morning, this son ends up making good. In the song's case, continuing the legacy. Now let's talk about Jephthah's legacy. Let's talk about what he leaves behind. But our reading includes verses 30 and 31. (laughs) Right, it was all good up to then. Sounded good. Then we got to verses 30 and 31. Dictionary.com defines the slang, this guy, this guy, as an expression used to highlight when someone has done something stupid or unbelievable. It's often used to reference oneself. The example the site gave was, who's got two thumbs and just drop their cell phone in the toilet. This guy. <laughs> right? So that's what, that's what that slang is using there. We might imagine at this very moment that Jephthah, who's made the dumbest vow that one could possibly ever make, going, who made the dumbest vow ever? This guy. <laughs> right? If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. All right? Why this vow is dumb, if you need me to tell you this. Number one, who do you think's coming out of the door of your house? Really, who's coming out that door? You think a goat was going to walk out to greet you? Wow, you know what? Some pigeons just came out my door. I will offer them as a burnt offering. Who's going to come and greet you? Now, we did have the dog and cat thing just before. So maybe your faithful dog might run out and greet you and lick you and stuff. Which would be a really tragedy because I'm a dog guy. Seems rather clear that he has a person in mind from the text. Everything about the text tells us that he's got somebody in mind, a person. And he employs this sense when he writes this about one who comes to meet him. So he knows full well that he's talking about a person here. It's pretty dumb that he doesn't have control of who that person is. The second thing why it's dumb is this. Why do you even need to make a vow at all? <laughs> I mean, why? Why? <laughs> why is the vow there? What's that all about? When we look back to verse 27. Jephthah makes a rather certain statement about the coming judgment. He says, let the Lord who is judged decide today for the Israelites or for the Ammonites. But then he makes the vow. A few verses later, in verses 30 and 31, what he's doing here is he's making a bribe. He's bribing God that somehow uh, God will do this for him. And so he offers this. So publicly, he employs bold talk about God's judgment, which implies that he has the support of God behind him when he goes forward with this. But in private, he directs a prayer to God that seeks to employ God's support for his cause, with a certain transactional or reciprocal deal. You do this for me, and I'll do this for you. Right? I've never prayed like that, have you? Have you ever said, God, if you ever get me out of this, 
I'm going to change my ways. <laughs> it's a good thing we don't do that in our modern sense, right? Everybody's nodding. Yeah, yeah, no, I would never do that. And here's Jephthah doing that. He's bribing God. There's a real problem with this, of course. A real problem. And not just the one related to his daughter. That's a real problem, right? Underscore. Real problem. But the real problem here for the, the vow as we look at this is that it's a total misunderstanding of who God is and what God is up to. The vow is unnecessary because it gets God wrong. <laughs> he completely gets God wrong. Look back at chapter 10. We learn that God's intervention in this situation, in the, in the cries of those from Gilead, that that intervention wasn't based on the people's return to faithfulness at all. They do return to faithfulness. They go through and they purge all the things out uh, from their life and their communal life together so that they can live a faithful expression. But God's response isn't based on that at all. And the author makes that very clear. No, it comes from God alone. Here's what the author says. And God could bear Israel's misery no longer. God chooses to intervene. So whatever action will follow has everything to do with what the hero of our series is willing to allow to persist, not because of what one might hope or even bribe their way into happening. If that wasn't enough, that wasn't enough. Consider God's silence throughout this account. God doesn't ask for the vow. That's Jephthah's doing. We see that in verse 30. God doesn't speak to stop all of this when Jephthah convinces himself that he must follow through with the vow. We see that in verse 35. There's no replacement that emerges once he realizes uh, what the vow will fully entail. That's in verse 39. And Jephthah and his daughter are both left without an heir. And that seems to be something that's very clear in the text as the author writes that this is his only child and the daughter is looking with great sadness that she will never have an heir. And they see that in verses 34 and 39. Exactly how wrong and misplaced all of this becomes all the more clear when compared alongside God's testing of Abraham in Genesis 22. In that text, God is clearly shown to speak throughout that God actually tests, in the voice of God, tests Abraham. That God actually steps in and calls for a stop in the midst of the test. That God provides a replacement in there. And that Abraham and Sarah are left with heirs so numerous and so many that they can't even be counted. But here Jephthah gets it all wrong because he makes a bad, bad vow. In closing, I learned recently that we might owe the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates credit for a, say, a saying that's popular still today. His saying is this, translate to English, for extreme diseases, extreme methods of cure as to restriction are most suitable. Like, thanks, Jimmy. That's a really helpful quote. I really appreciate that. That was really memorable. I'm going to say that to someone today. But perhaps you're more familiar with its modern version, its offspring here. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And clearly in Jephthah's day, they were living in desperate times. Clearly they're living in that place, and as we also find ourselves today living in desperate times of our own. But desperate times don't always call for desperate measures. That much we can see from the Jephthah story. It doesn't always call for desperate measures. 
Instead, desperate times call for faithful responses. They call for faithful responses. To see God's grace move in amongst a diverse group, even outcasts and outlaws. And to not make the mistake that we might add anything to God's grace. That we might have to compel God through bribery to get God's love for us. To become recipients of that grace. Because you can't buy, you cannot purchase, and you cannot convince God to give you something that God has already freely given to you. And we see that and we're reminded of that once more in our text. Bribes are unnecessary when God is so generous and so loving. Friends, as a church, as those who seek to be revealers of God's grace, may we be people who continue to reveal these notes of grace, these grace notes in our lives, in this community, and in this world. Amen. Let us pray together.